The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Listeners should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Welcome to the Wolf Den. This is Dan David. I'm here with the pack. We have Ethan and Carl, our sound engineer. God help us all. We have a very special show here today. We have Ambassador Dennis Shea. Ambassador Shea work experience includes the last two years has been serving as the Deputy U.S. Trade Representative and Chief of Mission in Geneva, where he represents the United States as the ambassador to the World Trade Organization. He only got that job because I turned it down. Prior to being the ambassador for the World Trade Organization, he served from 2007 to 2018 as a member of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. That's a mouthful. I've testified with them and talked to them before, and these guys take their job pretty seriously. It's defined as a bipartisan organization that annually assesses the U.S.-China security and economic trade relationship including China's compliance with the WTO commitments, which we'll be talking about here today. Each year from 2012 to 2017, he served as either the commission's chairman or vice chairman. Ambassador Shea, welcome to our program. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. And it's good to see you again. I remember your visits to the China Commission, and so it's really great to see you again. It's great to see you again, Ambassador Shea, in a different role, in the role that I saw you in with the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. I will say, out of the half a dozen trips that I took down to Washington over two or three years, your commission were really the only group of people I met that kind of thoroughly got it and understood what we were up against, where trade was concerned, human rights were concerned, a whole breadth of issues. So. Thank you for your service there, and thank you for your service now. Thanks, Dan. I mean, it was a real honor to serve on the China Commission, and it, uh, for a long time, it's been one of the truly, you know, bipartisan operations and com- commissions in Washington. You know, when I first started in 2007, you had sort of on the Republican side the National Security Hawks, on the Democratic side, more labor-oriented, uh, very concerned about WTO and U.S.-China trade. And we were viewed as sort of the hawks, the China hawks. Mm. And over the years I was on, from 2007 to 2017, the whole center of gravity in Washington shifted, where the commission was right in the middle of, you know, of, of thinking in Washington about China. In fact, a recent report in the Washington Post put a story on the front page about the report and called the China Commission influential and well-regarded. You know, again, that's a transformation from 2007 where, where we were viewed as a bit, bit wacky, you know, a bit out there uh, on the spectrum. But the whole center of gravity has shifted in Washington on, on China. Well, I remember when I came down to meet with you in 2015, I think it was, China was still an aggressive critic of this commission. And you put out a voluminous document every year that was the review. And I remember somebody saying in there, it wasn't you, but one of, one of the commissioners in there saying, I'm not sure how many or any 
members of Congress read this whole thing, but I guarantee you it's very well read in China. <laughs> That's true. That is very, very true. Uh, with annotations made, I'm sure. <laughs> when we would go to China, we used to go there annually to visit and talk to people. Uh, we were prohibited by the Chinese authorities to use our official name. Wow. We couldn't call ourselves the U.S.-China Commission because that would lend some credence or authority to the commission as if it were legitimate. We had to call ourselves advisors to Congress. Oh. And uh, they, they would police we us all? if we were. <laughs> you're right. If we uh, if we stepped over the line and said commission, they would police us. So it's very strange. Yeah. Well, not the least of which that it's strange that you have a minder wherever you go, just making sure that you're you're minding. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's an interesting thing, and I want to talk more about the WTO and the job that you've done there, and the difficult, difficult job. It's probably been no more in the news over the last two years than ever in my lifetime. But first, like as we're discussing China and their pushback against the United U.S.-China Economic Security Review Commission and others, is it ever amazing to you as it is me how China is able to export a chill on the freedom of speech outside of their country and how effective they are at this? It sure is. I mean, when you read about the extraterritoriality of the Hong Kong national security law. I've been reading about professors at universities in the United States who teach Chinese students. Yeah. And they feel the need to protect the identity of these students through uh, encrypted IDs and other, other measures so, because they might be uh, prosecuted for saying something in a class yes, here in the United true. States. Yes. And yeah, uh, so it's, it's pretty, pretty extraordinary. You know of, I'm sure, Professor Paul Gillis. Sure. He's accounting, a great expert on uh, accounting practices in China. We've had him on our show a couple of times. And one of the things that just kind of comes away as a, a throwaway comment we talked about is that he can be more critical of China teaching at Peking University, his class, than he can if he's doing a summer stint at Stanford. Really? Yeah, he could talk about Tiananmen Square to a degree. He could talk about maybe some things of freedom that would be better in China. But if he comes to the United States and teaches at, say, Berkeley or an Ivy League university, and he's critical of China in any way, he said he's got a line of students that will come after him. And these are, these are obviously Chinese students who are there, and they're made to do this, right? Just to show their patriotism to go after this professor who would dare say something yeah. on foreign soil about China. And it's, it's, it's where the Confucius University kind of tagline is starting to come into play. Right. I mean, it's, it's you know, that, that is troublesome. I mean, thank you for, for sharing that. I mean, there's some great work also on uh, United Front activities overseas. There's a book written by an Australian named Clive Hamilton mm -hmm. and uh, a German author whose name I can't recall right now, but on uh, United Front activities. These are activities to sh sort of shape and influence foreign governments, uh, other foreign elites, other foreign audiences, uh, and they take it extremely seriously in China. But it's a very good book. Uh, it just came out last year. I, I would recommend it. Clive Hamilton is the, is the author. I'll write that down. Carl, did you get that, Clive Hamilton? Got it written down. There you go, buddy. All right, so tell me, Ambassador, how did you go from the commission 
to becoming our trade representative, our deputy trade representative and ambassador to the WTO? It begins and ends with with Bob Lighthizer, oh. uh, my boss, <laughs> uh, yeah. the U.S. trade representative. I got my first job in Washington at a law firm where Bob was a partner mm-hmm. and he interviewed me. I, I still remember that he was the first person ever to walk me to an elevator after an interview. You know, this is, I was 26 years old. So he gave me a job. He used to work for Bob Dole, Senator Bob Dole. And he came down to my office a couple years into my stint there. He says, do you want to work for Bob Dole in the majority leader's office? And I said, absolutely, I want to work. So I got the job with Bob Dole. So I've had this association with Bob Lighthizer since that time. And uh, Bob simply called me up and said, after the election in 2016, and said, do you want to be the U.S. ambassador to the World Trade Organization in, in Geneva? And he said a few other things. And uh, I said, well, Bob, wow, that's really interesting. Let me call you back tomorrow. i got to check with my wife. Yeah, <laughs> as one does. I miss my boss, my other boss. And uh, I did. And, and uh, so Bob, Bob was the one who reached out to me. And he, I think one of the reasons is because he knew me but also because of my work on the China Commission, which fit in well with what we're trying to achieve at WTO. Right. And obviously, trust has to factor in. You've, if you're going to have your number two guy, it's got to be somebody that can represent you when you're not in the room. And he obviously felt that. That's, that's hard to do interviewing somebody cold and not knowing their background or knowing them personally. So I'm glad he did. I view it like I'm a pitcher and I know the strike zone. Okay. I know where the strike zone is. Mm-hmm. If I could, I could throw curveballs, I could throw changeups, I could throw fastballs, but if they're in the strike zone, I'm okay back home. Yeah. So I knew, I knew where the strike zone is. So I just keep throwing in the strike zone. Well, that's good. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, to the degree that you can take us a bit in the room and maybe behind the scenes, how this was just a totally different dynamic from our representation to the WTO than past administrations. I mean, I mean, including the Bush administration or others, it's not just Obama's, which would have been a very big difference. But what was it like when you first started meeting with, say, the China delegation or the WTO? Well, when I first got to Geneva, the, the Chinese put something on what's called the General Council Agenda, the agenda of the, the large meeting of the WTO, which was critical of our 301 and 232 actions. They're quite, quite uh, strongly worded statements. So I said to, to our team, Can you we explain need to come the 301? Can you explain the actions a little bit to the listeners? 301 is the, uh, the action we took, the tariffs we took to yeah. put on China for their forced technology transfer, mm-hmm. for their intellectual property theft, for their other, other practices. The 232 was the steel tariffs, right. which we took on the basis of national security. But we put together a paper for the general counsel on the trade disruptive nature of China's non-market economic model Mm -hmm. and how that really doesn't fit into the WTO system, which in our view is based on rooted market-oriented conditions in the trading members. Mm -hmm. And so we put together this paper, we circulated it to the entire WTO membership. I remember giving a copy of it to the head of the EU trade office. And he asked me, why are we doing this? And I said, well, we, the membership here needs to know 
that China's system does not fit into the market-oriented system upon which the WTO is based. And so I presented that paper, and it was very one of a sort of a well-known moment at the WTO, I think, at this point, where I presented it, gave a very strong statement. Here is China presenting itself as the defender of multilateralism, when the most mark, you know, defender of free trade, when the most mercantilist guy on the block. And we really went at it. And I remember after my statement, you know, you're sitting in these benches, you know, these long tables, my deputy there. And I said, how did that go? And he put his finger to his lips and said, please hold off. And the murmurs in the room were were very loud. Uh And uh, I had a several follow-up murmur moments, which I would call them, where I would deliver you know, statements that created a murmuring effect from the other other delegations. But frankly, I've been saying things that needed to be said. Mm-hmm. I've been, I feel I've been focusing on problems that have festered at the WTO for years. And I'm just calling them out. Yeah. And, and speaking forthrightly, in my opinion, about these problems. Well, I think that's true. And I think that that murmur sounded something like, Wow, this is this is a different kind of guy. <laughs> so yeah. some things have changed. <laughs> that was the murmur. Uh, because in 2018, uh, upon you ascending to your post, I believe you said, you can correct me if you're wrong, <laughs> and, and this might not have gone over well in China, uh, you called China the most protectionist and mercantilist economy in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that landed like a lead balloon. The Chinese ambassador told me uh, I was getting famous on the Chinese version of uh, Twitter in... in uh, Weibo? Yeah. Weibo, yeah. Um, so me and my Chinese counterpart, we, we sparred quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the WTO meetings. Uh, but I think too many, too many members, including like members that agree with the United States are fundamentally you know, in agreement are in the, with the United States, are afraid to speak up. And why is that? Well, they have, you know, many issues. Uh, They're concerned about their own trading relationship, Mm -hmm. you know, with China. You know, Australia is a great, Australia is speaking up now, but, you know, very like-minded to the United States. Uh Canada was very quiet uh, during this process. Australia and Canada were not speaking up before, though. And Australia has a huge trade with China. Yeah. I mean, they have a huge amount of trade. I think 40 percent of their exports could go to China. But they're now speaking, you know, they're Australia's one to its credit is one of the one of the countries that is is actually, you know, speaking up and saying we're our sovereignty is important and we're not going to change our way of life because simply because we we trade with you. But the EU, for example, has been a disappointment. Yeah. Uh, they, they haven't really uh, spoken up in any kind of significant way about, about China. The EU has been a disappointment. Insert issue here. <laughs> Whatever issue you want to put in there, you can put in front of that. The EU has been a disappointment, in my opinion. Uh, I, you know, I feel like Australia and Canada, perhaps, whether it's following the lead or not feeling like 5, 10, 12 years ago that they had the support of the United States to speak out, they, they didn't. And they have been more vocal now. I'm glad that they are because we do, as, as President-elect Biden has even said, we do need partners in this. We do need 
We certainly do. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Japan has been a very str- a good, good ally of the United States, the WTO. I mean, they don't go as far as we do, yeah. but uh, they go pretty far. And uh, we're, we've been working with Brazil uh, mm-hmm. over the past uh, year and a half. They've been very good. They've been very reform-minded. So, for example, we, we, the U.S., uh, Brazil, and Japan at the WTO are sponsors of a statement reinforcing that the WTO is uh, an organization rooted in, in market-oriented conditions among its membership, where market orientation is fundamental to free and fair trade. And so Brazil was the first one to join us with that. And Japan joined. So, I mean, I, to, to their, both of their credits, they've, they've stepped up to the plate and uh, have shown a willingness to reinforce this, these values that we share. Well, without being too critical, it seems like the WTO is based upon promoting free and fair trade throughout the world. That's kind of their overall mandate. They're not doing that. <laughs> And they haven't been doing that for a while. Uh, you know, I understand China's ascension into the WTO. It was thought, I mean, what was Clinton, Clinton's famous line? Let's see them try and uh, censor the internet. Good luck with that. Oh. Well, well, it turns out they did. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now we are, we're down the road and we've got all these companies that are really dependent on the 1.3 billion consumers in China. And they, they hang that over us and everybody else. But it doesn't seem like the World Trade Organization works anymore to promote free and fair trade when they put up with that kind of protectionism out of China. Well, I, I, I completely agree. That, oh, cool. That worked. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's, it's uh, my final statement, you know, I gave at the last heads of delegation meeting in December. I said, what troubles the WTO is people keep, keep saying a lack of trust. And I said, no, it's not a lack of trust. I trust that you're saying what your government wants you to say, and you should trust that I'm saying what my government wants me to say. Right. What, it, what bedevils the WTO is a lack of like-mindedness. Mm-hmm. We just simply disagree on some fundamental issues. And that's very problematic when it's a consensus organization where you have to get all 164 members to agree to do anything. Is that what it is? You have to get 100% agreement? 100% agreement, oh, come unanimity. On. Oh, come on. Or unanimity of acceptance. So it's not like I'm all for it, but you, you're willing to accept. So there has to be unanimity of acceptance among 104 members. I, I pointed out the three areas where there's lack of like-mindedness. One, I, the first thing is that the non-market economy of China simply is not compatible with the WTO. No. We believe this is about market-oriented conditions, market orientation at the WTO. They're not. And I explained why. So that's, that's the biggest reason. If, if we're the 120th largest economy, it wouldn't be a problem. But it's the second largest economy in the world. And it's playing by a completely different set of rules than just about everybody else. It just doesn't work. So that's number one. And I think I made some progress uh, in getting that you know, message across uh, to the membership. Second is the WTO, you do not have to abide by the rules or you can get special exemptions or carve outs from the rules simply by declaring yourself a developing country. Right, which China does. 
Yeah, China's a developing country. India's a developing yeah, country. I mean, Saudi Arabia is a developing country. Right. All these very wealthy and countries with very large trading. All these very wealthy and developed countries. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we've, we've been hammering that point. We have a proposal that we put forward at the WTO that says if you're a G20 member, an OECD member, you account for 0.5% or more of global merchandise trade. Call yourself what you want, but you you have to abide by the rules. I mean, right. you, you know, you can't get special and differential treatment as of right. You can negotiate for it, right. but you don't. You're not entitled to it as of right. So that's the second major difference that too many countries there just don't want to abide by the rules. So I asked, if you don't want to abide by the rules of the organization, why, be in it? why do you want to be part of the organization? And uh, so that, that's the second point. And the third point is this appellate body. Have you heard anything about that? The, uh, there is no appellate body. I mean, really. I there mean, is no appellate body right <laughs> now. We put an end to the appellate body. We blocked appointments to the appellate body. And there's just a fundamental difference. It didn't work to begin with. It didn't work. It didn't work. And it helped shield China, right. frankly, from a lot of disciplines. I won't get into the to the legal details, but few members felt that the this appellate body was supposed to be this international court creating trade jurisprudence that binds everybody else. And now that's and that's creating precedent. No, no, no. It's supposed to just look at the agreements. If there is a dispute, did the panel level get the legal arguments right? That's it. And do your job in 60 days and no later than 90 days. It's not creating precedents or jurisprudence. It's just, you know, more of an arbitration style approach. So there's a fundamental difference. Some members uh, feel it's some huge court of international trade, which the United States uh, has objected to, not just in this administration, but in Democratic administrations. Yeah, they did. And really, it's just a way to, to say, a ruling went against me. I'm not happy. I'm going to appeal it, and my friends will stand behind me on the, on the appeal. And it just didn't work. And talk to us about, I mean, first of all, do you ever feel like walking in there one day and go, you know what? We've decided the United States is an emerging market. <laughs> and, and we, or, or developing country. Developing, developing country. country. There you go. A developing We're country. We're going to declare ourselves a developing country. So uh, <laughs> we want all the benefits you get. That would be the ultimate insult to the whole organization. Well, I mean, at, at some point, you know, don't be insulted, organization. But if this is the way it's going to work, I mean, talk to us, Ambassador, about like, what are the benefits of declaring yourself a developing nation versus a developed nation? Well, it's simply a, a matter of negotiation is if you declare yourself a developing country, you can, you can say, I'm, I'm entitled to exemptions from the rules. I'm entitled to, uh, to, to, to carve outs. I'm entitled to long transition periods to abide by the rules. So you can get, you can, uh, and we see it in, we have one multilateral negotiation going on. It's been going on for 19 years right. to discipline subsidies on fishing, you know, illegal fishing. Right. And, right. and you have you know, large players saying, you know, we should be exempt from any, any of these d disciplines. I mean, China, for example, the U.S. is pushing for a prohibition on subsidies that support distant water fishing. So you've seen so news like reports. So like 2,000 ships show up off the coast of South America? You got it. You got it. Yeah. Yeah, the 300, yeah, right outside the EEZ of the Galapagos Island, right. which is the most, you know, marine, yeah. biologically right. diverse regions of, of the ocean. Right. Just sucking up the fish. And that's, subsidies for that are good. 
Right. I mean, that's the argument that uh, China presumably uh, makes. So anyway, so you call yourself a developing country, you can get special exemptions and carve outs. Well, and the emerging market part of it is, you know, like the special discount rates they get at the World Bank that we end up funding. Because if somebody's getting a discount and we're paying our share of paying more, aren't we funding those who are getting a discount? Right. And they, they continue to play that game too, which I think is just a bit silly. I mean, it seems like a few people could sit down and be like, let's just stop playing this game. You're the second largest economy in the world. No, you don't have an independent court. That's not going to change. Uh, that would make you truly a developed nation, in my opinion. But given that that's not going to change, everything else is really developed from the banking side to the infrastructure side. My gosh, their infrastructure transportation-wise, is better than ours uh, at this point. I've been on that bullet train from what, Beijing to Shanghai, that what goes uh, 300, uh, is it 300 miles an hour or 300 kilometers an hour? I, I, I think they do the kilometer thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty darn fast, yeah. Well, there's no reason we shouldn't do it. I mean, like, it should take, yeah. it really shouldn't take more than an hour and a half to get from New York to Washington on a train. It's just, but we digress. They are not a developing nation, in my opinion. I'm glad that you share that view. I mean, what ends up happening when you go back to Representative Lighthizer or the president and you say, look, this is just not working. They're just delaying tactics. They're waiting for us to be out of this administration, and then they'll delay again. Isn't that what they're doing? Well, you know, I found that I would come back periodically and report to Congress, mm -hmm. uh, talk to members of Congress and their staffs, not just, you know, Ambassador Lighthizer but, uh, and people at USTR, but this Congress. And I, I would outline, this is what we're doing. And they would know what we're doing, but I would outline, you know, this is what we're doing on notification compliance, on market-oriented conditions, on developing countries, on the appellate body. And I got a lot of support back in the United States uh, from both, both sides. And I remind uh, my colleagues in, in Geneva, particularly on the appellate body, the sh concerns that we have are shared broadly across the political spectrum in the United States. So I'm, I'm curious how the Biden administration is going to handle you know, the WTO. Um, my sense is that the U.S. position won't change very much from what we're doing, but I don't know. We'll see what the future holds. I look at this one issue at a time, and I think where the president has seen some success, and if I don't believe that, he'll, he'll tell us, uh, is with trade. And you know, everybody said, look, you're never going to be able to renegotiate NAFTA. Well, he did. You did. Uh, and Bob Lighthizer did. Okay. Well, you were part of that. Um, Ambassador Lighthizer being the leader of that. And then the answer becomes, well, it's only nominally better. Oh, okay. <laughs> so better is not better then. And then in China, how tariffs would never work. It would just never bring them to the table. But it did. Can you take us through their thought process there and what eventually brought them to the table? Well, you know, I was not directly involved in the uh, U.S.-China negotiations. I was at my post in, um, in Geneva, so not, not directly involved. But my, my, I think you hit, hit the nail on the head. Uh, the fact is that without the leverage 
nothing would have happened. I mean, we've had 15 years of uh, negotiations with these alphabet soup groups, the SCD, the JCCT right. with China, with commitments made and nothing happens. We brought 23 cases through the dispute settlement system at the WTO, and very little happens. You're not going to you know, litigate yourself, solve the China problem through WTO litigation. So what Bob did uh, was exercise some leverage, brought leverage to the table, and uh, that got their attention. And that's been my experience over you know, 15 years watching China that you have to be willing to impose costs to force some action on their part. And sometimes imposing costs can go back at you. It's not cost-free on yourself to right. impose costs on others. But if it's a fight willing to fight, then you got, you got to step up to the plate and take cost-exacting measures like we did at, uh, in, the, in the China negotiations. Well. Yeah, I, I, I've often said, did we did we think that China wasn't going to fight back? There would be, there would be some pushback, and you know, President Obama, for his part, I think was very statesmanlike and predictable, which I think China really likes predictability, and he said please and thank you a lot, and that didn't seem to get it done with Europe or China being nice about it. What gets it done is having a cohesive policy. And consequences. The consequences matter, I think, the most. If there aren't any, then China is just going to continue to look at mm -hmm. look after China, right? I think yeah. a, a China's ambassador is it Zuar Hanman is a member of the China Advisory Board to the body to the WTO. In 2019, he said the WTO needed to abide by the most favored nation and national treatment agreements. What do these agreements mean and how are they advantageous to China? Well, most favored nation treatment says you treat everybody the same. You have tariff bindings and they apply to everybody equally. So our tariffs that we imposed on China as a result of what I said, the 301 investigation, yeah. China alleged that they violated the uh, non-market, they, they violated the MFN uh, principle. I guess the point I would make is, you know, again, the WTO is, is premised on the notion that everybody is essentially going to be working, engaged in trade on market-oriented policies on the basis of market, and China simply is not fit, fitting into that. It's a non-market economy, so we're dealing it in that fashion. We did make an argument at the WTO that the tariffs, the 301 tariffs, were consistent with the WTO agreement, with the GATT, we made a GATT general agreement on tariffs and trade argument on public morals, that China was violating public morals, and that, that gave us the right to impose the tariffs. So we try to make an argument within the WTO system. A panel at the WTO uh, rejected that. But fundamentally, you know, the system, uh, we tried 23 cases uh, on various aspects of uh, Chinese policy and practices. It didn't really move the needle. China did not morph into some uh, market-oriented economy. Uh, it's very much state-led, as you well know, yeah. in many different areas, particularly in the high-tech area and, and areas where the government feels they need to be the, the leaders. So we took action that we felt that we needed, we, we needed to take. So to what degree does the WTO factor in or consider human rights violations? Are they completely agnostic to that? They're just on trade? 
or does any of that come in? Uh, it's not really a, an organization that is, uh, you know, focused on human rights. I mean, I could see in the uh, Biden administration, there could be issues around uh, forced labor. Yeah, I hope so. In China, that uh, might get people's attention. It's getting people's attention outside the WTO. But whether that moves into the WTO, uh, you know, remains a, remains a question. But it's not a human rights organization. No. And, it, you know, on a Middle East part of it, like considering their situation there, I, I often think about, you know, who, who Iran's biggest trading partner is, and it'd be China, right? Uh, and Russia. And, and why is that? Because they're the most, you know, strictly Muslim nation governed by the Quran in, in the world. You think they don't know that China has a million, two million Uyghurs in forced labor camps and is doing all kinds of things that would be considered objectionable to Iran, but they would rather trade with China than us. And I think, you know, some of that comes down to the fact that China's not dropping bombs in the Middle East. And China basically says, you do you, you run your country the way you run your country, We'll run our country the way we run our country. And China seems to get a lot of trade based on the fact that they don't tell people that they need communism or democracy, where we kind of come in and say, you know, we're going we're gonna to topple Saddam Hussein. One of the bedrocks, as you know, of their foreign policy is non-interference in, in the internal affairs of, their, of, of China, right? But... Yeah, with certain countries, they say, you, we'll leave you alone, you leave us alone. But uh, they seem to be interfering in, in Australia's uh, domestic uh, politics and domestic situation by delivering a list of grievances to Australia, because not for something that Australia did against China, but because of things that they want to do to preserve their own you know, way of living. I remember when, remember when South Korea put missile batteries in to protect themselves from North Korean missiles, which in the range of these batteries extended into, into China. The radar, yeah. Yeah, China took, took action against Korea. China has withheld rare earths from Japan. Yes. Because of, I think it was this, the, Senkaku, the debate over the Senkaku, administration of the Senkaku Islands and, and um, steps taken by the to Japanese government to assert more authority over the Senkaku Islands. So they, they, sometimes they, they talk the non-interference game, but then they interfere yeah. uh, selectively in certain countries. Well, I think I, very regionally anyway, uh, they, they are, in my opinion, what I've seen is they're going to be a complete regional power and really kind of have denial of access to the South China Sea, which is a trade issue, right? Because they're taking fishing rights there and trade rights there from us. So I see them doing that regionally, you know, and maybe that's going to expand with the Belt and Road in Initiative. They're certainly moving into Africa, and I think they're going to leapfrog off Africa into South America and get in our hemisphere is their plan, is that kind of coming down in that pathway. But it's a scary thing what they're doing with the South China Sea. It's both trade-related and military-related. And at this point, I don't know if there's anything we can do about it. Do you, do you? Well, I mean, we continue to conduct, the United States continues to conduct freedom of navigation exercises 
you know, in the South China Sea to, to assert that this territory is not yours. It's not anybody's. Right. And that's the U.S. upholding international law. Right. Okay. That's the U.S. upholding international law. We need more countries. And when I talk, talk about allies and, and when we hear about allies and partners, we need more countries to join us yeah. uh, in these exercises and to assert that this, this, this enormous geographical mass known as the South China Sea is international uh, waterways. So, you know, one thing I point out when people say, oh, the U.S. is a terrible ally. I mean, you know who sold, my understanding is who sold the, uh, the engines to the Chinese their, for their diesel electric engines, which are very quiet to make them very quiet and therefore very deadly. The submarines? Submarines, yeah. yeah. Uh, was Germany yeah. over U.S. objections. Uh, don't even get me started uh, on them. Don't even, I mean, like, <laughs> how powerful are they in the EU when it comes to trade? Well, you saw that the EU and China just signed an... Oh, you mean Germany? Germany? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think this EU-China investment treaty was largely driven by Germany, which in turn was driven by, you know, powerful multinational interests within Germany who wanted to secure, you know, market access or at least commitments for, for greater market access from, from China. Yeah. I feel like the EU economy really kind of flows off and is a derivative of Germany. That's no knock on France or some of the other bigger countries, but it seems like when there's a crisis or when there's leadership, they all kind of turn to Germany and it's really all about production for them. Yeah, I think obviously, particularly with the exit of the United Kingdom from the EU, Germany is even a, a larger player, if not the largest player oh, yeah. in the EU. Yeah, no question about it. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. We're, we're going through here. You've seen the Kennedy bill, I guess we'll call it, where companies will be delisted from our U.S. exchanges if they're not compliant with PCAOB rules. And then we've come out and we've uh, announced the delisting of the China telecoms from our exchanges and then rescinded it and reannounced it. Uh, I wonder if if that's going to go back to rescinding it with the Biden administration. What do you think about these bills overall and taking that action overall and about what's happened with these telecoms? Well, I don't really have a point about the Kennedy bill, but I do think some of the actions we've seen coming out of Congress, coming out of the State Department recently are actions that are fully justified and long overdue. And I'm, you, you know, I read that they, they're coming out like uh, one, one, one every day, it seems. And, uh, you know, I, I personally applaud most of them, you know, to the extent that I, I don't, I'm not engaged or personally involved in any of them. Uh, but from what I see, this is stuff that should have been done years ago, and we're finally, finally doing it. So on, on many of these different issues. Yeah. And I think that that, I agree, it's long overdue, should have been done. But I, I noticed like some of the criteria in there, I don't know if you can speak on this either, is that if you're notionally run by the state or controlled by the state as the telecoms are, obviously, then you should not be listed on our exchange. But the fact of the matter is, you could really pick all, almost any company based in China and, and say anytime they want, they're run by the state. You know, you look at Baidu as a, for instance, 
is the largest purchaser of artificial intelligence companies and intelligence over the last three years. Do we think that that artificial intelligence doesn't go straight to the Communist Party? Yeah, I think I, I coined a term on the China Commission called OPSIs, ostensibly private, but state-influenced uh, corporations. Uh, we're going to use that, <laughs> OPSIs. <laughs> so, you know, I think there are quite a few OPSIs in China. You know, everything runs to the Chinese Communist Party. Whatever they want will get done. Right. Uh, so whether you're a private company with a, board, a regular board of directors, if, the, if you got a knock on the door from the... CCP and they want something you're going to you're likely going to do it because well, your survival depends on it. There's a, well it, it, that that's a fact. Uh, I know you're laughing at that Carl but like you think there's not a member of the CCP on Alibaba's board or or right there or any of these companies there's a minder in that company that is as powerful in some ways more powerful than the CEO of the company because they are reporting back to the party. You know, I've been to China and you go to the, uh, oh, this is a private company. You're taking a, a tour of maybe some wind turbine factory or, you know, there's the private. With technology they stole from us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you look in a, you look in a door and there's the, the Communist Party room. I mean, they literally have rooms where the, where the, the cadre, the CCP cadre meets. I mean, Jack Ma is a, is a member of the Chinese Communist Party. Of, well, of course he is. Right? I well, mean, I think he admitted that. He, that that's publicly known. I think they took him in a room at one point or another and said, you're a member of the China Communist Party, right, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> and Jack said, right. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we, we did a show on him last week, how he's kind of disappeared. And you know, you know how it is in China. You, you, you know, they, they tell you to lay low. You go in your gilded cage, which is your apartment. <laughs> and I think they put out some kind of release of some kind that said that Jack Ma is embracing his supervision. <laughs> so... Yeah, like we all do when we get married, I suppose. <laughs> but for Jack, it's with no benefits. Well, actually, you know, if it's with no benefits, it's exactly like being married. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so that, and that's what you talk about. And that's the nuance that you mean, I think, when you say a protectionist economy. Because when it's controlled by just a few people at the top, how is that a free market? Just notionally. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's like they have national champions, which could also be uh, ostensibly private companies, but they have national champions, which are state-led, state-influenced, state-run, financed by the four major state banks right. in China, meeting industrial policy goals established by the Chinese Communist Party, supported by intellectual property theft and, and, and cyber espionage to help them uh, develop. Add to the mix the fact that uh, they don't have an independent judiciary. There are restrictions on uh, information flows. Uh, the greater growing influence of the CCP in, in companies, both private and and uh, and state state owned. It's it's uh, it's just not a system that's compatible with the WTO. And you know, for people to think that I'm just just some kind of hawk. I mean, like, okay, I don't really care what you think, but still, I will just say that. Even in the meeting that I had with, with you five, six years ago and the commission, I came in and part of what we were talking about was an aluminum company. And mm -hmm. the investigation we had for a year was that this huge, I mean, think about a massive aluminum company that employs more than 100,000 people and how 
they went from number 25 in the world to like number one, two, or three in the world in a matter of three or four years. And as we see, I mean, when you think about aluminum, it's a, it's a 20th century product, right? It's, it's, uh, and that's because of electricity. So you, you take, you mine for bauxite, you get the alumini out of there, you melt it down, and then you electrocute the alumini and you, and you have aluminum. And what we found, which is an open secret and everybody knew, is the electricity was subsidized. And that was the biggest cost in producing aluminum. So when President Trump or President Obama or anybody who's talked about aluminum dumping in the past, that's what they mean. Right. Well said. I mean, on the China hawk, people call you China hawk. I don't, people say I'm a China hawk. And I say I'm, not, I'm a China realist. Right. Um, I'm realistic about what's happening, what I think at least is happening in China and what, the, what the, the, the challenges the system presents to the rest of the world. I, I consider myself a realist, not some sort of hawk. Well, I mean, look, the, the fact of the matter is you're speaking in facts. You're not speaking so much in opinion. I've, I've kind of asked you or steered you towards an opinion a few times, and you've demurred and you've stepped, you stuck to the facts. That's not a hawk. That's somebody that is, that is just telling the truth in, in a fact-based manner. So I appreciate that. All right, so we, we asked you about the market, and you weren't necessarily involved in that, and, and these companies being listed or delisted. That's what we had talked about before. What do you think, just in kind of closing here, what do you think would be the most ideal agenda for the United States going forward with the WTO? Is it, is it to work within a broken framework that everybody has tried to manipulate back to some kind of some kind of fair process or walk away? I'm hopeful that the Biden administration will just pick up the U.S. reform agenda that we've been advocating over the past three years and keep pushing it forward. There's a lot of support in the U.S. across the aisle for, you know, changing the appellate body. Uh, we ended the appellate body, but many people share our point of view here in the United States on market-oriented conditions, on on not greater notification compliance, having company, countries abide by their obligations to notify their subsidies and other trade policies, which is abysmal, abysmal record at the WTO. Mm. This differentiation developing country issue continue. We have a proposal on that. I hope the Biden administration continues to forge that, continues to work with others to say, we need to stand up for our values. Right. We have some shared values here at the WTO. And we need to stand up for it. I had trouble getting other countries, frankly, to join us. But I hope others will, will work with the Biden administration to sort of assert what we think this organization is about and should be about and the values that undergird it. Because if there's not a sense of shared values, if the membership doesn't sort of have a general agreement on what the purpose of the organization is and the underlying values that, that support it, it's, the prospects for the WTO are quite, quite bleak. What's the critical mass in terms of country support? You said Australia, Canada, and the U.S. have all made that kind of push to hold China, I don't know if accountable is the right word, but to, to be honest, but what's the critical mass? 160 plus countries, is it, if you get 50 in there, that's enough momentum to say that's enough? Or does it, is it a certain number of key countries to say, all right, it's going to happen. Well, I don't know if there's a critical mass, but there are definitely countries who are who should be working with us who are not 
really uh, joining us in some of these tough issues. Who are they? I mean, the EU, the EU, the European Union. You know, we have a a, a proposal on differentiation developing country. The EU does not support it. We have something, a proposal on market-oriented conditions, reaffirming that as the foundation of the WTO. The EU won't co-sponsor it, even though Japan and Brazil have done that. The EU opposed our case, our 301 action. I mean, we try to make an argument that our 301 action worked within the WTO system. We cited, you know, provisions of the agreement that that justified our action. And the others like Japan supported our, our, our legal argument, but the EU opposed it. The EU has this, it used to have uh, this sort of obsession about the appellate body. Uh, I don't know if that's changing. Like the appellate body is a great thing. I could not get the EU when I first started on this job. I would say I went to Brussels and I spoke to the head of DG Trade, the top civil servant in the trade agency in the European Union. I said, is there any concern that the U.S. has expressed about the appellate body that you share, that you think we're right on? They said nothing. We agree with you on nothing. Wow. So, so, uh, and the appellate body has been a very has been a, a shield and a spear for China on, on on cases involving anti-dumping, countervailing duties, to go after these subsidies that are given to the state-owned enterprises. The 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 appellate body has been a shield. So, I have been very disappointed with the EU as a as a as a, as an actor for change. Uh, at the WTO. They want to play small ball. They want to just go, let's come up with some trade and initiative. And that shows that the system can work. And there are a few plurilateral initiatives that don't require, that are, that are open to all the membership, but are not, all the members are not part of. That can be useful. We're working, the United States is engaged in one in particular, developing rules on digital trade. There's a plurilateral negotiation going on, and we, we, we're very active in that. So there could be some positive momentum for the WTO if something like the e-commerce plurilateral negotiation actually bears fruit. But China's part of it. Yeah. So how do you have we, – we, we, we support you know, free flow of data across borders. We, I'm thinking they might not. Yeah. So how do you how do you come up with something meaningful, yeah. right? When China's part of of this effort. So there you have it. Long winded answer to a simple question. Is a, a very articulate answer and and educational. Small ball is what China invented. We're never going to beat them at small ball. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, they're going to win in the end. I mean, you look at what did it take to get what's nominally known as the U.S. Postal Treaty changed it all the yeah i was there for that i was there for that that was a good great thing yeah but the the u.s said we're leaving we'll give Mm -hmm. you one year and if you don't change this thing why are we subsidizing why is the u.s postal service subsidizing packages from china right why are we paying for it because in 1924 (laughs) (laughs) right exactly and we said this needs to be changed and we work with allies we work with countries like Canada, Norway, Australia, and others, and we beat that back. And the organization was saved. Well, but if we did not fix that, the organization would have, you know, well, really they they said that too, uh, and and that's that's the kind of thing that you're you're criticized for in the beginning, especially from the organization itself. But 
What people didn't realize, and, and I went around talking about this in 2018, and I brought it up a lot, that this was putting, this was to a large degree putting a lot of businesses and had put a lot of businesses in the United States out of business because it's not just the cheap labor that you're competing with here in the United States to make a t-shirt, but even if you have that t-shirt, it costs more to send it from Virginia to New York than it did from Beijing to New York. Right. And by the way, if you wanted to send it back to Beijing, well, that really cost you money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and, You're exactly right, Dan. And, and that, that made no sense. And, and I guess now that's changing, which is good. And hopefully some of the manufacturing can come back here. But they're, like, if you order these cups or, or paper or things of that nature or T-shirts, one of the main reasons you had to get it from China was the postal treaty and how we were being treated on it. And congratulations and thank you for getting that done. That well, was great. I, I was a, a supporting member of the supporting cast on that, but it was I was I was part of it, so it was very helpful to. I very think I thankful. could spend the next three hours pointing out something you did, and you'd not take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to take credit for, but I was I was there. I was supportive. Okay. Well, I'm going to take credit for it because I was talking about it all through 2018. All right. Last question. You're probably not going to be part of the Biden administration. I don't know if that's news to you or not. <laughs> no, I won't be. My last day is next week. Oh, okay, so I'm not breaking the news? No, you're not breaking the news. Okay, I can stop right. sweating. Woo. Okay. No. <laughs> uh, so that, that being the case, what could, happen, what could happen in the next six months, year, two years that you see related to trade, related to WTO, related to us, China, or EU? that you're like, uh-oh, this is, this is going in the wrong direction and we should be worried. What should we be looking for? Well, I am going to be paying attention to what's happening at the WTO. Mm -hmm. And if there is, you know, general complacency, if there's like, let's talk about trade and fill in the blank, okay? Right. And talk about that for like three or four years and nothing gets done. I call it sort of institutional attention deficit order. Right. We have things on our plate at the WTO that need to get done, but let's go off and look at the sh next shiny object. And if, if that dynamic plays out, that'll be troublesome. We need to get a multilateral negotiation done to discipline fish subsidies. Yeah. We were uh, obligated to get that done on December of last December. We failed. We're still far apart on many fundamental issues. So I'll be looking at that. I'll be looking at the e-commerce plurilateral. I'll be, I'll be really looking at what the Biden administration does on the appellate body. I mean, we have really made our case at the WTO. I mean, we've pounded that. I mean, we have really strongly made a case about how the appellate body has deviated from the rules we all agree to as members. But I hope the Biden administration keeps tough on that. But if they start sliding and, you know, that's the one that's the one I thought you would say. That, yeah, like, I'm going to be looking at that very, very carefully. Well, so thank you for everything you've done for our country, everything that you will do. I know that you'll still be working on behalf of you. I speak English. Yo hablo español. But FCI brings us together from document translation, interpretation, transcription, and voiceover to any of your linguistic needs. FCI helps the world communicate in one single language, yours. 
For customized language solutions, call 610-438-8900 or visit us at fcitle.com. FCI, the language experts, making the world connect. United States, whether you're in private practice or part of the government, I appreciate your time here today, Ambassador Shea. We wish you the best and the most success. Stay safe out there. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Great to be with you. Okay. That was Ambassador Shea from the World Trade Organization. And I thought that was a very compelling interview. Gave us a lot of insight over the last couple of years in trade with China and the EU. If you liked what you heard, give us a like on, on Twitter, retweet it, send us a comment, tell us who else you want to hear from. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you soon.